0: hello and welcome to how to talk to kids about anything where we give you the tips scripts stories and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier i'm so thrilled to be your host dr robin silverman child and teen development specialist author and speaker and most importantly parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love learn and grow Every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's really not always easy, but we're in this together. And thankfully, we have so many great people who can help us and give us the insight we need along the way. So have you ever wondered what is the secret of success, is it intelligence, is it talent, luck? Perhaps it is a bit, but more and more the research is telling us that there's this X factor. The reason why some people fail, other people succeed comes down to grit or what is sometimes referred to as mental toughness or mental strength. What is mental strength? How can we develop it? And how can parents, teachers, coaches help kids to develop mental strength these are just some of the questions we are going to be getting answers to on today's podcast with Amy Morin. Now, Amy Morin is a psychotherapist and the author of the internationally best-selling book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Her next book, which we are also going to be interviewing her for in the coming months, called 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, that applies to us, goes on sale in September. So we're going to have her back on and we will be talking to her in September. Her advice has been featured by major media outlets including Oprah.com, Fox News, CNN, Time, and Business Insider, She's a regular contributor to Forbes, Inc., and very well. And in fact, her article on 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do was picked up by Forbes a while back, went viral. And she's just an amazing wealth of information. I couldn't be more thrilled to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining us on How to Talk to Kids About Anything.
1: Thanks for having me. So before we get
0: into the meat of the matter, for those people who haven't yet read your book or heard you talk about these great 13 things that mentally strong people don't do, would you just take a moment to tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in exploring and talking about mental strength and 13 things mentally strong people don't do?
1: Yeah, you know, mental strength has been something I've always been interested in. And early on in my career, I just assumed my job was going to be about talking to other people about how they needed mental strength. I never imagined how much I was going to need it myself. And shortly after I launched my career, my mother passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm and she and I had been very close and losing somebody so unexpectedly, it really rattled me and it made me say, "Okay, well, how do you go through these tough experiences in life and and come out stronger and to not be reduced by them. And that really launched my my journey in learning as much as I could for for more personal reasons. And then on the three-year anniversary of when my mother died, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. Oh, my
0: gosh. It's terrible. It's terrible. And,
1: you know, to figure out, okay, now I'm a 26-year-old widow and I don't have my mom and how do I... How do I go through this? And I'd seen so many people in my therapy office who would go through some difficult circumstances and some of them grew from it, but some of them felt like whatever those circumstances were just held them back in life and they were never able to to go on and reach their full potential. And so, again, learned as much as I could about mental strength and sort of learned along the way that sometimes it's not about what you do, it's more about what you don't do. Mm-hmm. When I studied people who who had gone on and still felt like they had a wonderful life despite whatever cards they were dealt, it was often because they didn't have certain bad habits. And so then a few years later, I was fortunate, I found love again, I got remarried, got a new job, new house, and thought, this is my fresh start. And During all of that, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. (sighs) And it was then that I started to think this isn't fair and why do I have to go through all this and I shouldn't have to deal with this. But I remembered that thinking like that would just keep me stuck. So I sat down and I wrote a list of all the things mentally strong people don't do. And when I was done, I had a list of 13 things. And I thought, well, if this list is helpful to me, maybe it could help somebody else. And I published it online thinking... Maybe somebody else would would find it to be a resource for (laughs) them. Yes, never imagined (laughs) it would. Never imagined it would go viral. It's been read by more than fifty million people at this point. (laughs) And it led, to, it led to the book. And so that's the story of how I came to talk about what mentally strong people don't do. It was sort of on accident. It wasn't anything I intended. But I'm thrilled now that I get to, get to speak to so many people about how to get rid of those bad habits in life. So you've
0: really gotten your own mental strength by the school of hard knocks. And you've been knocked down. And I just, just want to take a moment to say, I, I am so sorry those things happened to you because they are absolutely terrible, I am really happy that you have taken these incredible lessons that you've learned from being in these situations and provided the world with such a heartfelt way of presenting your expertise. I just want to to highlight that you and what you've gone through, while so terrible, has become such a gift to everyone else.
1: Well, thank you very much. I felt like I was fortunate that, you know, I saw so many people in my therapy office over the years and I studied each one of them to figure out well, what what helps you. And I was able to take all of that and say, how do I apply it to my own life? So mm. even though I thought my, my purpose was to help other people, really all those people helped me along the way too. And I'm just so grateful that I had those experiences so that when I went through my own tragedies in life, I had some of the knowledge of what do you do? How do you get through it? And what do you not do? Mm, So beautiful. Uh,
0: So as we launch into this a little bit more, I just want to get on the same page. So in a nutshell, for our amazing, loyal listeners, would you just tell us what is mental strength?
1: there's really three parts to it. So the first part is about your thoughts, and it's regulating your thoughts so that you don't think overly negative, but you also don't want to be overly positive. I think so many people are caught up in thinking you just need to be positive all the time, but sometimes you just need to be realistic. Mm-hmm. And so it's about figuring out which thoughts are true, which things are, is your brain telling you that's irrational, illogical, and just sorting that out. So that's part number one part number two is about managing your emotions so that your emotions don't control you. And it's not about suppressing your feelings. Instead, it's about becoming aware of how you feel and how those emotions play into your decisions that you make and how they affect your behavior and how they affect the way that you think. And the third part is about your behavior. And it's really a choice to say, how do I behave productively, no matter what kind of circumstances that I'm in. So when you combine all three of those things together, that's when you have mental strength. It's beautiful.
0: And I know that our listeners have heard Dr. Lynn Kenny talk about feelings and big feelings and how kids can kind of get their minds around it. We've talked to Wendy Young about how we can feel anger and deal with anger. And yes, it isn't about suppressing it, certainly not with ourselves and certainly not with our kids. So I, I really appreciate you bringing in that piece. That this is not about you know telling yourself, I need to be positive all the time and I can't feel what I feel because that is not the answer. The answer is feeling what you feel, but dealing with them in in a productive way that helps to move you forward.
1: Absolutely.
0: All right, so is this mental strength idea, something that you are born with? Is this temperament? Or is this something that you can develop like a muscle? And if
1: so, how? It definitely is something you can develop just like a muscle. And we talk so much about physical strength. Well, of course, we all know if you want to become physically strong, you go to the gym and you work out and you build muscle. But then if you really want to make more progress. You have to quit doing the bad habits, too. Like, mm. you don't want to eat too many jelly donuts on your way home from the gym. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll cancel out your progress. And mental strength is the same. It's really about saying, okay, how do I do things today that are going to help me to build my mental muscle? What can I do to become stronger? And sometimes it's as simple as saying, I'm going to practice gratitude. Mm. And other times it's about saying, okay, I don't I don't like feel like going to work today, but I'm going to go anyway. Mm. Or I... It's hard to take the high road or be the bigger person in this situation, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to tolerate being uncomfortable sometimes, or I'm going to face my fears. And it's really about all the choices that you make on a daily basis, because sometimes people will say, well, it's not fair. If I have depression, it means I'm mentally weak. But that's not true at all. Mm. Just like if somebody, say, had diabetes, they could still be physically strong. It might be a complicating factor, but it's all about the choices you make. So even if you are struggling with depression or anxiety or any host of other problems, you can still make choices every day to become physically or mentally stronger. And, you know, you're never strong enough, because sometimes I'll hear people say, well, I already have enough mental strength but it's the same as physical strength. If you went to the gym for six months and then said, well, I never need to go back to the gym again. I'm already physically strong. That would All be done. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And so to know that you, there's always room for improvement. There's always more things you can do in life to grow mentally stronger. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Now, I just want to underscore one of the things that you said. I mean, sometimes mental strength, you know, it it, it can be... It can be something that is really small and you can do in small increments. I mean, you were saying like, today I'm going to get myself to work. I mean, or, you know, I'm going to leave the house. Or sometimes it might just be, I'm going to get out of bed today. For some people, that might be the first step in moving forward, um, especially if you may have depression or something that might be weighing you down, like some of these tragedies that you've talked about. And then I would imagine from what you're saying that, The the steps get maybe a little bit bigger and you're doing things that challenge you that much more as time goes on.
1: That's it. Exactly. So I know in the beginning, you don't have to take a huge leap. It can just be one small, teeny tiny step. And and when you keep doing that over and over again, it gets a little bit easier. And the next, next day will be a little bit easier. And there's no timeline for some people. Okay, maybe one month, they feel like they've taken a huge leap. And other people feel like, all right, it's been 30 days, and I'm still taking baby steps. But as long as you're taking steps in the right direction, that's okay. Just keep moving. That's great.
0: That's great. You know, I talked, we interviewed Gail Saltz, who did the power of different Um, Her book came out uh, a couple months ago, and she talked about the gifts and the strengths in having depression, anxiety, ADHD, and I, I just love that you mentioned that having depression doesn't mean you're mentally weak, that you can move forward and make great gains every day and use your gifts in beautiful ways. No matter what your challenge is, I just think that's really great that you you've also you know talked about that because you know I think people think that when they have something going on with themselves that they they get pushed back or pushed down, but that doesn't have to be.
1: Yeah, I hear that from a lot of people. It's one of the things I hear probably the most from people who are talking about mental health and mental strength in the same sentences is that they just somehow equate it with weakness. And Mm -hmm. so I try really hard to make sure that people know that's not the case at all, that just like any of us could get a physical health problem, any of us can develop a mental health problem at any point in time too. And in fact, the statistics are that I think only seventeen percent of us are functioning at um, optimum mental health. Mm. <laughs> and so I think that says a lot about us and then at the same time, a lot of people would never want to admit that they're not one of those seventeen percent of people, but yeah. the reality is that most of us you know have yep. plenty of room for improvement. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a feeling
0: that you know, if you have a physical problem that you can do things that help you overcome it or cope with it in productive ways and when you have something going on mentally, you can also either work to overcome it or you can cope with it in some unique ways that move you forward. That's what it sounds absolutely. like to me. Yes, absolutely. So in your book you talk about these 13 things that mentally strong people don't do. They range from don't waste time feeling sorry for yourself, don't dwell on the past, don't give up after the first failure, don't expect immediate results. So how do we, in general, as parents and educators or coaches, people who work with children, love children, help children, how do we help kids to develop mental toughness and avoid falling into these traps that mentally strong people tend to avoid
1: a lot of it has to just do with your habits as an adult Mm. and when you are a good role model you'll teach your child how to, how to be in the world, how to get along with other people, how do you deal with disappointment, how do you deal with failure and setbacks and those sorts of things. And I think as adults, sometimes we try to shield kids too much from our own pain that we'll mm-hmm. try to smile or say that's okay or we're so worried about if a child is sad that we don't ever show our own emotions or we don't talk about it. And it makes kids then feel like adults don't really have true emotions or adults, the only emotion they ever see is anger that when grown ups get mad, they yell. And so I think it's really about teaching kids, yeah, I'm sad when that happens, too, or I'm afraid of giving this talk at work tomorrow, but I'm going to do my best. And just having those sorts of conversations or when somebody cuts you off on the highway to say, I'm angry when people do that, but but I'm going to control my temper, and this is how I do it. I take three deep breaths while I'm driving. And sometimes just having more of those conversations with kids for them to know, oh, you have feelings or when you have self-doubt, it creeps into your head to be able to say, you know, sometimes my brain tells me I'm going to fail and I'm not going to do a good job, but I'm going to try my best anyway. And just letting kids know that those things are all normal. We all have negative thoughts sometimes and we all have these uncomfortable feelings. But when you can role model how you do with those things and kids learn, oh, okay, so when I'm afraid, it doesn't mean I shouldn't do it. It means I can, I can face my fears. And that's how a lot of kids learn about how to be mentally strong in the world.
0: Mm, okay. So, so then mentally strong adults in kids' lives are people who don't bury their feelings. They're people who talk out loud and provide the scripts for kids and the know-how so that the kids can then take what they're learning from these adults and apply it to their own lives.
1: It's, that's it exactly. I see a lot of kids in my therapy office who will say things like, oh, my dad's not afraid of anything or my mom didn't care when our cat died because she oh. never cried. Oh. And and when you hear those sorts of things, you know, that these poor, poor kids just aren't learning enough about emotions for them to know, yes, all adults get scared and all adults get sad sometimes too. And maybe they don't show it, but they're feeling it on the inside. And sometimes just opening those doors to those conversations can help kids know, oh, okay, I'm okay then too. If I have these big feelings or if I have these kinds of thoughts, it doesn't mean that I'm bad or that I'm stupid. It means I'm just, I'm normal and I can learn how to deal with him too
0: yes yes and when our dog passed away in december which was just so grueling he was 16 years old and you know he had had a great life but he you know he at the end we just didn't want him to suffer uh and all of us were just distraught about it my daughter said recently she said i think daddy took it the hardest and oh. I, you know, and I, I, I mean, she's a very empathetic girl, and but my kids both happen to be. But I, I liked that she knew that it, mm-hmm. it, it's true. I, I think it's true. You know, that was it's. It really was man's best friend, and and you know, it's a long time to have a dog. We we adopted our dog when he was nine weeks old, so you know, it's been it was a very very long ride and a really terrific life. So. I think it's good when, you know, something sad or something bad happens that our kids see us dealing with the emotions, talking it out. Um, And sometimes it is a matter of talking out loud, not obviously getting caught up and swept up in, you know, carrying on and going crazy about it, but making sure that our kids understand that we have deep feelings and that we we might cry, we might yell, uh, we may get really quiet. And that's some of the ways that we deal with things.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think that is key, just making sure that kids know that we deal with the same issues that they do in a different kind of scale, but a lot of them aren't boiled down to the same things and that you have positive coping skills. I think we don't spend enough time showing kids what our coping skills are, or teaching them how to have their own.
0: Yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. You're really hitting on some very important pieces of information for everyone. But I think what you're saying is really important that we need our kids to know what's going on in our heads when it comes to these emotions and how to deal with situations when they're tough, when they're challenging. And that means perhaps speaking out loud, admitting defeat, admitting failure, saying how you feel about them. And, And then our kids can learn from those. So you're so good about Uh, providing tangible ways to help people to become mentally tough. I mean, that's what your books have been about. It's what your articles have been about. And I, I would love for you to go through perhaps three of these habits on your don't do list and talk about the tips that can help our kids become mentally tough in that particular area. And maybe some scripts, because that's what we're asked about all the time. Like, how, how, how do I talk to my kids about it? So so how about some scripts on maybe how to talk about this or how to start the conversation without falling down the rabbit hole? Um, would that work for you if we can go through maybe three of these?
1: Sure, that sounds good. Okay, so how about we
0: take the first one, uh, which for your first one is don't waste time Feeling sorry for yourself. So what are some tips that can help our kids become mentally tough in that particular area?
1: I think it's important for parents to notice uh, when their kids are feeling sorry for themselves. So if your child didn't make the baseball team and he starts saying, you know, it's not fair or the coaches just didn't pick me because the other kids are their favorites or I'll never make any sort of sports team ever again in my whole life. But when they have these sort of exaggerated thoughts. Absolute. Right. And kids, you know, when adults do that too, with this sort of like all or nothing kind of thinking or this exaggeration or when your child gets two questions wrong on his math test and he says, I've totally failed. Mm. To be able to step in and say, now is that a true thought? Or what we call in therapy a lot of times is a blue thought when you have these exaggeratedly um, excessive self-blame, but to be able to say, is that is that a real, is that a true thought? And what makes you think you'll never make a sports team? And well, what if you wanted to make the basketball team? What could you do instead? And this sort of Socratic questioning where you can just sort of ask some questions to help your child figure out, well, is that real? Is it true that because you didn't make the third grade basketball team that you're never going to make another team in your whole entire <laughs> life and there's absolutely nothing you can do about that? <laughs> And sometimes just helping kids see things a little bit differently can, can get them out of that pity party. And to make sure that you don't reward them for feeling sorry for themselves. I see a lot of parents who will say, well, he's really upset because he didn't make the team, so I'm going to take him out for ice cream tonight. Oh. But to know that it's OK for your child to be sad, mm-hmm. and it's OK to be disappointed. But what you don't want is you just don't want him to exaggerate and extrapolate that this one thing is going to ruin his whole entire life, or he'll <laughs> never be in the NBA, or whatever else <laughs> It is. And another great way to combat self-pity is, is to use gratitude. And so if you make it a daily habit to, to go after the good by saying, hey, what's the best thing that happened mm-hmm. to you at school today? And because I think so often it's easy for kids to just come home and tell you about the three horrible things that happened on the bus and at recess and during math class. But if you go after the good and you say, wow, those are some tough things, tell me about the best thing that happened in your day. You can turn the conversation around and encourage kids to start looking for, for the good things that happened to them at school, too.
0: Yeah, I love that. And actually, we at the dinner table, we do something called roses and thorns. So what was your rose today? The best thing that happened, best part of the day and your thorn. So what was the worst part of your day? And it, it does bring out some really interesting parts of conversations. We actually have added in a little bit after talking to Michelle Borba um, on her book and uh, on empathy You know, we talked about uh, what are two kind things that you did today. So we are trying to bring to light some of the positive things that have happened. And, And I think it does do exactly what you say. It makes them start to look for things. This is something I want to report to my parents. This is some way that I've been kind. This is something that's great that happened. And instead of looking for the things that disappoint you, you start to look for the things that excite you and thrill you and make you feel really good inside.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really important because for kids, they just can develop this sort of negative lens where they just screen out all the good things that happen to them. But when you start to make it a habit to say, we're gonna look for those good things, and even if you had a bad day, I bet you can think of at least one or two good things that happened to you. It can really then change their outlook so they don't declare every day horrible and awful.
0: I'm wondering that under this same idea, this not wasting time, feeling sorry for yourself, if there's an area where you as a parent or a coach or a teacher, that'd be so powerful from a coach. Um, like, Can you imagine in that same scenario that you were just talking about, the kid who lost the, the, the game, you know, a coach, you know, being able to say something about their own story, maybe that they've they lost the game once or many times. And, you know, here's how they felt And here's what they did. Is that telling your story as an adult? Is that something that can help them not waste time
1: feeling sorry for themselves? it is I think it's huge to be able to give kids stories and even if you don't have a story if you know of a story of another inspirational person mm-hmm. or even your neighbor or your cousin whomever it might be but to say this is what helped her you just want to make sure that you don't end up saying like sort of minimizing your child yes. so if he says well I didn't make the basketball team and you're all oh yeah well I didn't make the basketball <laughs> team for seven years so you just you do not want to compare or anything, I can see but- how that could happen <laughs> Right. And so I've seen, you know, like I had to walk to school barefoot both ways. <laughs> and so. But to be able to validate your child's feelings. Yes, I know. And I was upset when something kind of similar mm. happened to me. And this is what happened. And, you know, but this is what helped. And we'll figure out what's going to help you deal with these feelings, too. But in a way that doesn't make your child feel like you're minimizing it but to just validate his emotions
0: that's really important i'm glad you said that because i think it could be could get to the point where you're like doing some comparisons and that kind of thing right Um, you know we we talk about uh you know when the child is like i i don't like what's for dinner well i had to eat meatloaf my husband's like i had to eat meatloaf every day like really really did that it was terrible meatloaf Really, (laughs) but it's really. I think, like you're saying, it's important to validate their feelings, and then, of course, provide a story. And you can even ask, "Would you like to hear?" Something that happened to me and and how I dealt with it it's sort of similar it gives them the opportunity to to listen to what you're saying, and then maybe there are times of course, when they just want to want you to be their sounding board and and you can just be there to uh you know to be a shoulder to cry on for them to do, you know to get their feelings out and then you can move forward with them in that way yes, yeah. So let's move on to number two, which is not giving away their power. So how is that something that you can help kids to develop, um, you know, that feeling that they keep their power and and maybe don't fall down the rabbit hole of giving away their power?
1: Yeah, so not giving away your power is really about saying, okay, I'm in control of how I think, feel and behave. And kids obviously have limited power in the world anyway, but for them to know that they do have some power. And so that if their friend is peer-pressuring them into something that they can say no, or uh, when your child, and part of it's just correcting their language, so even when your child says, oh, my teacher makes me do so much homework to remind him well does your teacher make you do a lot of homework or are you choosing to do your homework because you want to be a good student Mm -hmm. and just helping kids make that shift sometimes can be instrumental in helping them know okay even as a kid i do have choices and there's consequences for my choices if i didn't do my homework maybe mom and dad would ground me or maybe i couldn't go out for recess tomorrow so that's why i'm doing my homework not because my teacher's forcing me to do it Mm -hmm. and just that subtle little shift can sometimes make a huge difference for kids Mm hmm. That's, That's really
0: important what you're saying, and that they can see that they have some choice, they do have some power, and that they're actually taking it upon themselves to make really key decisions that can result in bad, neutral or good consequences.
1: Right, and it really puts the responsibility back on them. Or even so when they say, oh, my mom's making me clean my room tonight. Well, is mom forcing you to clean your room or are you doing this because you want to be able to watch TV later or whatever it is, but for kids to know, okay, or because I love my mom and she asked me to do this, that's why I'm doing it. But for them to just be aware of, okay, I don't have to, I don't have to. And that when you say somebody else is making me do something, it gives that person power. And same with feelings with um, kids sometimes who will say, oh, my my teacher makes me feel so bad about myself. Mm. To be able to show them that your teacher doesn't make you feel bad about yourself, maybe she doesn't always give you great grades, but you can still feel good about yourself anyway. And then when kids feel empowered to know I'm in charge of how I feel and how I feel about myself, despite whatever other people say or do, that can really help them, especially later in life, too, for them to know as they're growing older that they're going to be criticized and not everybody's going to be your biggest fan, but that's okay. Mm, Yes, we have to learn that often.
0: Uh, Unfortunately, that's a tough one to to stomach, even as an adult. I I like that you're talking about this idea that I am in charge of how I feel. And, you know, that's not to deny, you know, that you're sad or angry or, or frustrated, but that you're not saying, that person, that friend of mine, that teacher, that coach has made me feel this way, right? We're we're in our own bodies. We're making our choices. And yes, we have feelings that we need to feel. But then if we give away our power, we're not able to get out of it. We're like waiting for somebody else to pull us out. Isn't that correct?
1: That's it. And then kids just become so dependent on their circumstances or the people around them to regulate their mood. And when you can teach them, okay, you can still have a good day despite what's going on around you. It just gives them this new ability to say, okay, even when I find myself in tough situations, it's up to me to choose my attitude.
0: So is this a an area where affirmations might be helpful, where you're, you can teach your child to say something like what you just said, like if you're having a conversation and say, instead of saying to yourself, they're making me feel this way, I hate my day, this is a terrible day, this is the worst day ever, that we can shift it to, I can still have a good day despite what's happening or, or whatever the affirmation might be.
1: Yeah, I'm a fan of affirmations. I think sometimes when we give kids the script or help them create a little script for themselves, especially when they're struggling in one particular area. So if they say my teacher makes me feel stupid because I can't do math, well, what what could you say to yourself? What's one thing that you can remind yourself tomorrow during math class about being smart? And if you can just come up with a little script and even write it down and you could put it on a note card. And if your child has a folder, he could keep it in his folder to look at um, or to read to himself just to help him say, okay, when I'm having a bad day, what's something I can tell myself when my brain's trying to tell me something completely different. And, when you can teach your child that, you know, he's in charge of figuring out some of the things that go through his head, and he can choose to think differently. And even when his brain is beating him up, or it's calling himself names, that kind of a thing, as a result of what's going on around him, he can change that script and kind of talk back to that voice. And when you give him the some affirmations, that gives him some of the tools to be able to do that.
0: Yes, I love when we can give that a name, you know, when you, you know, name that voice, is that you know some people call it their gremlin but i also will say whose voice is that is that you know that boy in fifth grade that told you this is that the same the same person is it when i'm talking to adults i'll say is that was that your mother in law that said that to you was that your mom was that your dad who whose voice is inside your head telling you that you're not good enough in these ways because then when you can name it, it kind of becomes a little bit more separate from yourself right it's not like your voice it's somebody else's right
1: Right. And then when you get that little bit of distance, I think it's easier then to yes. move forward in a much more productive manner.
0: Yes. You can be like, I hear you, David. Stop talking
1: to me here. That's right. That's not how
0: I feel. So, OK. And I, I like that idea. And then um, I also feel like you're hitting on something that so many teachers and coaches can do as well, not just parents, to say, that child who's having a mental block or, you know, like, I, I feel like I can't do this, that they can help come in as a teacher or a coach or a mentor or a leader and say, let's change that language. Let's help you to approach this back handspring in a different way. Or let's help you approach this math problem in a different way. What can you say to yourself? That, that I feel like could be, that's a like global. That's something that anybody can use.
1: Yeah, and it's wonderful when you get parents and, say, teachers and coaches, and they're all kind of on the same page, and they use the some of the same language to talk to kids, and then kids will automatically recognize, oh, okay, and it really just reinforces to them, okay, you know, I can I'm in control of how I think, and what's a different conversation I can have with myself, and that can be incredibly empowering for kids to to be able to do that.
0: I agree with you. I think that does give them their power. And that says I can do this. And then when nobody else is around, that's something that they can access that scripting is something they can access when they're in a challenging situation, and they have no coach or teacher or parent standing by.
1: Right. And that's the ultimate goal. So that when you're not in the room that your child still knows how to do those things without you having to be right there telling him what to do all the time. Mm
0: -hmm. So let's move on to number eight. I'm just going to be arbitrary here. Number eight, not making the same mistake over and over again. I'm very big on this idea, this idea of mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes, but let's not make them over and over again. So tell us about tips That are going to help our kids become mentally tough in that area and then scripts we can use to help discuss this with them
1: i see a lot of parents on both ends of the spectrum i'll have some parents that when there's a mistake they sort of freak out and the kid feels terrible and then i see parents on the opposite end of the spectrum that are all, oh mistakes are wonderful. Everybody makes mistakes and completely blow it off, even if the kid just punched somebody else in the face. Well oh, you gosh. were mad, it was a mistake. Oh gosh. And so I think it's important to you know to find that middle of the road where you can have a conversation with your child that says, Okay, that wasn't okay that you did that. And what can you do better next time? And to help your child know that he can make a better choice in the future. But quite often, you know, parents, I think, want to inflict suffering on kids. So they they punish them. And that's really the difference between punishment and discipline is whether you're teaching your child to do better next time, or you're sort of inflicting punishment for something that already happened. But when you can make your discipline, you can give your kid consequences that will help him to make a better choice. So rather than shaming your child or giving him a two hour lecture to make sure that you're teaching, how do you make a better choice next time? And so if your child hits his brother, instead of hitting him to say, okay, when you're angry, what are your other options? What can you do next time? And you still send him to his room or take away his electronics for the day or whatever it is that you want to give him for a consequence. But, but also make sure that he has some tools to manage his anger or to resolve conflict Um, Rather than just getting angry that he makes the mistake, but if you want him to learn from it You have to figure out what life lessons do I want him to learn and how do I make sure he has those tools? And so it's really an exercise for parents to examine that or why is he not? I've been teaching him tools, but he doesn't access them when he needs them so what can I do to make sure that he feels like he has these reminders the next time he gets mad and it's really about Correcting your child's behavior, but not the emotion. I think sometimes parents get those mixed up, so they'll end up getting angry at a child because the child was angry. Well, make sure you send the message, it's okay to feel angry, but it's not okay to hit your brother. Mm -hmm. So the next time you're angry, what can you do? And maybe problem solve. You can take three deep breaths. You could walk to your room. You could ask mom for help. You could... Go for a walk outside, whatever it might be. But to really problem solve with your child, what are some things you can do when you're when you're upset that won't get you in trouble? And even write down a list and hang it on his wall if you have to. But to make sure that he has the tools that he needs and he knows how to access them, and at the very least that he can at, knows it's okay to ask for help before he gets in trouble. It's genius the idea of of making a list. Because sometimes
0: kids need those reminders. And they can then say, oh, here are some things that I can do. Here are th- some things that I discussed with mom or dad uh, who have helped me to come up with better choices in this circumstance. It's It can be challenging. But if you can catch them before they go into the abyss, which is, you know, that crazy tantrum of, you know, anger where they're not, you can't talk to them because right. the amygdala has, you know, shut down the gate, um, then you can you can help them to access those different different ideas.
1: Yeah, and for younger kids, you know, I think if they can't read a list or it's not going to be helpful, make a calm down box. Mm-hmm. And you can say, go, go to your box, maybe have Play-Doh in yeah. there or something that smells good or whatever it might be and get your child involved in helping you figure out what could go in the box. And and then you can make it a habit after a while, so he knows. Okay, I'm starting to get angry. I'll go do that now before I, before I act out. And I think, quite often, parents take it upon themselves to either prevent their kids from making mistakes um, because they don't they don't want to stop it from happening. But sometimes you have to let your kid make mistakes, and then you use it as a a lesson, a life mm-hmm. lesson. But I also think then sometimes parents take responsibility so when their child's upset and he's having a tantrum, they try to calm him down rather than teaching him how to calm himself down. Mm-hmm. And it's really about making sure that you're whatever it is you're doing in those day to day moments that you just turn it into some sort of a, a teachable moment. What can you be teaching your child right now? What kind of life skills can you can you provide so that down the road he'll he'll be better and he'll make better choices next time.
0: Amy, these are incredibly important skills that you're talking about. If people want more of these types of calm down box ideas and how to calm down when when the child is really angry, you can listen to Wendy Young, who did the whole thing on anger, or uh, Lynn Kenny, who talked about how can we help the kids deal with those really big emotions and move this we talked about moving the starting point which is I feel like what we're talking about here how can we talk to these kids and teach them and go over what just happened when they you know finally calm down how can we get better tools how can we better deal with our emotions when they get really they start to mount and get big and go up anger mountain as she calls it because then we can move the starting point. The next time they're better equipped, right? They have better tools than they did the first time. So I I think, oh, I love what you're saying. And I also just want to underscore one of the things you said, that you're providing them with consequences. You're not shaming them. So genius because sometimes it gets a little muddled right there. And we make people, our kids feel bad for being angry or upset or really frustrated. When really they need to be taught, I mean, yes, we can provide consequences, but we don't shame them for their feelings.
1: Yes, absolutely, and I think it's so tempting when parents are embarrassed or upset that they just take it out on their kids. And um, you know, you see that in the grocery store—the parent that's screaming at their child because the t- child's having a tantrum—and it's embarrassing for the parent. Mm-hmm. Or you know, a child gets in trouble at school, and the parent comes in and is yelling at the at the child for. Getting in trouble at school, and it's just a matter of making sure that we don't pass on our embarrassment or our shame about our parenting onto our kids to kind of cover up for our own discomfort.
0: Yeah, we've all probably been in that circumstance. I've yes. certainly made mistakes in that area, I'm sure, and uh, <laughs> we're all getting better, you know. Yes, <laughs> it's really it is. So, so to end this up, I just want you to provide your top tip, it's top tip time. So what would you say is the single most important thing that you wish parents knew about mental toughness?
1: I would say... That progress doesn't always come in a straight line. So sometimes it'll feel like two steps forward and one step back for yourself and for your child. There might be days where you think, I've got this handled and my child's doing awesome. And then the next day, everything feels like it's falling apart. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that you're all the way back at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It just means that sometimes things get a little bit worse before they get better. And that's part of the, part of the process.
0: Progress doesn't go in a straight line. That is awesome. And I, I think that's something that we can all keep in our minds, when it, whether it applies to our parenting or our everyday lives, maybe at work, maybe in our own relationships. That is such a good truth. Thank you for talking about that. That's great. Um, will you also give us the resource of the week? How can people find out more about you or your books what, what can people do to get more information about your fabulous work?
1: And my website is the best place to find all that, and it's Amy Morin, LCSW, as in Licensed Clinical Social Worker.com.
0: Excellent. Thank you. And of course, you have your fabulous book, and that is. 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And we are so eager for your next one to come out on parents and what they don't do when they are mentally tough. So I can't wait to interview on that. But I I just wanna thank you so much for joining us today. Amy, you've you've provided us with so many great tips. I think your scripting is so genius. It's very casual and conversational as it should be and something every parent can do. I just am so excited that you are here to provide us with these very important tips and scripts. So thank you for being here.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours, let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. Let's go to facebook.com slash Silverman or let's chat about it at DrRobinSilverman.com or twitter.com slash DrRobin. And if you love this podcast like I did and Amy Morin just, oh, what a gift. Would you kindly go up to iTunes and rate and review it so others will learn about Amy's incredible solutions and how to use this information in their own homes or in their own schools? I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit DrRobinSilverman.com. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, and I think this podcast underscored it so well, even when it seems like nothing is going right, we all have those days, you've got this, you're here, you're getting the information you need, and on the days we fall short, never forget there's always tomorrow parenting is the ultimate do-over, or as Amy said, progress does not come in a straight line. I get it. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. You really are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. I'll see you next week.